Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Another big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies, who did the heavy lifting editing this episode. Learn more about his work at IdealVideoStrategies.com. If you haven't joined the ADHD Essentials Facebook community yet, we'd love to have you. It's a group where you'll find support for parenting your kid with ADHD, managing your own ADHD, just all kinds of fun ADHD stuff. It's delightful. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash ADHD Essentials community to sign up. And remember, the best way to support this show is by sharing it with others, either online or in person. So feel free to let your folks on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram know that we exist, or just tell your friends and neighbors. And don't forget to put up that five-star rating and review on iTunes that you've been meaning to post for the past few months. In fact, feel free to pause the show and go do it now, unless you're driving. If you're driving, pull over first so you're safe. Finally, if you don't already listen to ADHD Rewired by my buddy Eric Tivers, go check it out. Not only did he get me started in this whole podcasting thing, but his show is excellent. He consistently gets amazing guests and has fascinating discussions with them. His recent episode with Russell Barkley was phenomenal and incredibly informative. Welcome to ADHD Essentials. Today, we're talking to Jara Meltzer from the Interactive Learning Center in Lexington, Massachusetts. Jara is an old friend and an expert in the learning and development of children, both academically and socially. It was an honor and a privilege to get to reconnect with her and have her on this show. In today's episode, Jara and I discuss focusing on process over results, the power of saying, I wonder, allowing space for failure, asking better questions, and the pillars of problem solving. All right, let's get rolling. So I'm Jara Meltzer, and I am a senior developmental learning specialist at the Interactive Learning Center. Um, And what we work on primarily is problem solving with children and adults. So we use a constructivist approach to to help uh, individuals develop problem solving skills where such that they can be independent learners, both in the classroom and in day-to-day life. What does a constructivist approach mean? A constructivist approach means that rather than give an answer and say, this is how you do it. What we're going to do is we are going to open up the problem and let the child be the discoverer. Let the child be the one who is leading this charge. There's three different ways that I like to think about it. So one area is language. When we use language to support a child in thinking, we can say, good job. But we could also say things that maybe don't uh, have that sort of 
oh, good job, you completed the task kind of feeling. Instead, we might say good thinking or wow, you re worked really hard on that or I can't believe how long you stayed with that. You were really, really focused. And so when we say good job, what we're saying is that good job, you completed the task. And that may not be what we mean to say, but that's a connotation often mm -hmm. to our listeners. And so rather than use the language of good job, we might say good thinking because it's, it's the staying with the problem and the thinking that we want to expand to other areas of their life. So if we say, wow, you worked really hard on that or wow, you were really thinking about that. It's not about completing the activity. It's about the work that they put into it. Mm -hmm. And it often, when we see children and adults, we, they may not solve the problem within a given session or within a given moment. Um, because what we're not, what we don't want to do is scaffold the completion of the activity. We want to scaffold the thinking that goes into the activity. Uh, when I say scaffolding, what we think of is the amount of support needed to stay with the activity, but not necessarily to complete that activity. I mean, there are some activities where the end goal is what has to happen, and we might need to support to the end goal, and that's fine. But if we're, if we're working on an activity in play or to gain the skills that they might use in other areas, mm -hmm. then we don't really care if that activity is completed. What we care about is that the skills that they learn that they gain through that activity, that those are carried into other areas of their life, that those skills are generalized. Okay. It's not about finishing the puzzle. It's about seeing something similar and saying, wait a minute, this looks familiar. I know how to get started here. So this is sort of like when I had my kids take basketball lessons. I told them, you're not taking basketball lessons so that you can learn how to hit a three-pointer. You're not even really taking basketball lessons to learn how to dribble, although I hope that you learn how to dribble because that's a basic skill for that sport. You're taking basketball lessons so you can learn how to do something that's hard and that you don't want to do and then do it again. You're taking basketball lessons so that you can learn how to fall down and get back up again. That's why I was having them take basketball lessons. And that's whether or not they learn and finish the skill doesn't has nothing to do with the resilience aspect that I was hoping they would get from those practices. Exactly. So if we are scaffolding, that's the first question we want to ask ourselves is we want to say, is this about a lesson that they're learning in this activity or is this about this activity? Mm -hmm. Because if it's about the activity and some things are, I mean, there's a certain point where you have to brush your teeth and you have to get ready for bed and you have to go to bed and we're not going to do a lot of problem solving around that every single time. But there are other activities where we might say, wow, you're really working on building this tower. That's really interesting. How, and, and how can I help you to be thinking about that tower? I don't really care if you finish the tower. If it's important to you, then, then I'm going to help you to finish it. But that's not what my goal is. And so how we support individuals does really depend on what is the goal. What is the big picture goal of this? And hiding inside of this, for the parents, right, is you have what's the point of the thing that you're having your kid do? Because if you're, if you're teaching them how to make cereal, is the point that they learn how to make cereal? Is the point that you're increasing their independence? Is the point that you know they'll start using the stepladder because the cereal is up high and that's a thing that they're actually going to want to get 
but getting them to use a stepladder will also facilitate them helping you when you need the spaghetti. So looking at the purpose of the, of the task that you're providing your kid and the value of that task beyond its end game, that's in here too somewhere. And that's not exactly problem solving. It's not, that's not teaching a kid problem solving, but that's some problem solving skills that the parents listening might be able to pull out of this. Yeah. So back to language, we do a lot of, and this is, I think this is something that can be used with uh, significant others, with your children, <laughs> with your coworkers. Um, but one thing that we use a lot is the the phrase, I wonder. Mm -hmm. Because what I wonder is, is not saying, I think, or opening up a criticism. It can be saying, I wonder how we are going to achieve this goal. And you're inviting the other person to wonder with you as an equal participant in that situation. And so it might be if we are doing, um, sitting down to do homework, it might be, um, uh, just a simply noticing thing. So it could, you know, I'm wondering if you are needing a few more minutes before we sit down. Mm -hmm. And that's a way of saying, you don't have to say, you know, you're, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, or why are you under the table? Um, <laughs> why, why haven't you started even opening up your backpack? But instead, we're, we're giving that opening of that non judgmental opening of this is what I'm thinking right now, but I'm inviting you to have this conversation with me. When does that phrase sunset in terms of ages of kids? The I wonder phrase? Yeah. I think it depends on how you do it. The goal is to always do it in a respectful way. Um, I mean, I, you know, like I said, you know, it can be used with your significant other. It can be used with coworkers. Mm -hmm. It's not a... I don't think of it as a strategy, but as a way, sort of a mindset of thinking about it as let's figure out this problem together. Mm -hmm. And so rather than asking, are you ready to do your homework? Saying, I'm wondering if you're ready to do your homework might give them the moment to sit back and say, oh, I'm not even sure if I'm ready to do my homework. Mm -hmm. As opposed to having to, when you get asked that question, usually the response might just be, yes, yes, I'm ready, even if they're really not ready. Right. So it's giving that, that opening to take a minute and reflect. Okay. So language use that I use with my clients, with my kids, mm -hmm. one thing I do is if a kid, if I say to a kid, like, are you ready to do your homework? And they're like, yeah. And I know that that is not the case. Yeah. I often look at them and I go, this is my skeptical face. And I kind of like squint a little bit <laughs> or I raise an eyebrow depending on my mood. And, and that's usually enough to kind of back them up a little bit and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, nothing about me is showing that I'm ready to do my homework until you asked. And another thing that I might say is help me understand fill in the blank, right? Like help me understand why you're standing up when I thought we were sitting down to do homework, something along those lines. And I sometimes say, uh, I'm wondering, which is, I don't know why that feels like it's better for a, like a middle school kid than I wonder, but it does. And that's, that's kind of where, what, where I was going with that question of like, when, when you get to that age where a kid's like, yeah, it's nice that you wonder. And there, that sarcasm is starting to creep into their brain a little bit. How do we make that shift? So I think the key thing, and I love that you 
what you're doing, I think, is also drawing a little bit on the humor aspect. I do that a lot. Which <laughs> is always a, a, a great way to get in. And I think that it really is about doing something that feels natural, natural for yourself and is respectful to the person you're speaking to. Mm -hmm. So if you are saying something that comes across as being maybe very judgmental or, you know, then yes, a teenager or a preteen is going to look at you and say, you know, tell me what you really think. They're, they're not going to get, they're not going to let you get away with any of that. And, and I think, but I think if you are using it in a way that respects them as an individual and respects them as uh, in a way that's not, you're not speaking down to them. I think that's maybe the concern is that it feels a little, it can feel like you're speaking down to them a little bit. Yeah. And I think that's where you have to be careful and that, but if it's coming from a place of being genuine and having that mutual respect, then you, I don't think that there's an age limit on it. Okay. Um, because you can imagine that, you know, if you're sitting in a staff meeting and everybody's having, everybody has different things that are coming up to say, sit back and say, okay, I'm wondering if we need to put together some sort of a table for this, or I, you know, that does not come across as being speaking down to the rest of the team. What I'm saying is, yeah, is not even a little bit. I'm how can we work together on this? And that's really, I think the key thing is it's, it's about how can we work together on this? And so when we're doing a problem solving activity, and I love the example of puzzles because I think it's really concrete and clear how that's problem solving. But yep. when we do puzzles with children, so this is an example of how we might scaffold their problem solving and not the completion of the, um, of the activity is we might say something along the lines of, well, what should my job be? How can I, how, what should I, what piece should I use? Or, or, and then they might, and then it can be up to them to say, well, I need a piece that's blue. Can you find a piece that's blue? Or, or they might say, if they're at a higher level, they might notice that it's an edge piece. And so they say, okay, I need all the pieces that are edge pieces. And then if they're, if I don't think they really have an understanding of what that is, and it's been taught to them, I might say, well, well, what, what would an edge piece look like? And that would be for a much younger child. And then they, and then they have to really explain to me what that is. And so then we're having a real back and forth about it. And they are really coming up with a game plan. And half the time when we do that, I'm not even, I don't even end up being needed in this part because they found the piece already uh -huh. in, in this activity and they're, and they've gotten started. A lot of this is that questioning role, right? Like it's, you're not, you're not giving directives. You're asking questions. And, and for the parents who are listening, that's a hugely powerful tool because the stuff we say to our kids becomes their internal monologue. And if we're providing them with questions to address problems, they can go further with that as opposed to if we just constantly solve the problem for them. If we're like, like they don't have their homework, they didn't write it down. If we say, all right, well, why don't you go online and check or call Timmy and get the homework from Timmy. Then we've solved that problem, but we haven't given them some problem solving skills because if they're in a different situation, they're not going to be able to just call Timmy. Right, exactly. As parents, I think we have a tendency to not want our children to have moments of failure, not want them to get it wrong. 
but a little bit is okay. And those are actually really important. So if we are always saying, get your shoes on, get your shoes on, get your shoes on, then it's not a terrible thing to have them walk out the door without their shoes on one day. Mm-hmm. Now you want to do that on a day when you're not running late and you have the ability to run back into the house and get the shoes when they step out into the snow and it's, whoa, it's really cold. <laughs> but I think sometimes having those moments, those little moments of, oh, that's why I need to put my shoes on because it's freezing outside and my feet are going to be cold. Mm-hmm. But until we have that moment of I've walked outside without my shoes on, we may not have a picture of why do I have to get my shoes on? Why is that important? Mm-hmm. Why is that on the to-do list? And so some of that help that comes with just experience that we as adults have, we know we know what that we need to wear our shoes when we leave the house and we know what shoes we need to wear. Right. And that's particularly useful if you've got an oppositional kid, mm-hmm. right? Cause the oppositional kid kind of has to learn stuff the hard way sometimes. Cause they're like, no, I don't need to wear shoes. You don't know what you're talking about mom. And then they step in the snow and they're like, oh, I totally should wear shoes. And with that oppositional kid, we have to give them the out because yeah. now it's all pride and they're like, it's not that cold and they're shivering and they have no coat on and we have to allow for the forgiveness that they can give to themselves and that we can give to them to go back inside and get the coat, get the shoes, or we can even have it with us. But, but sometimes those natural consequences like you're talking about are a really powerful learning tool. Right. And you were talking about, about the, you know, making the bowl of cereal and learning the steps to make to pouring a bowl of cereal well there it's we can give the direction of how much milk and how much cereal to add but until a child has been through that process and messed it up a few times they're they're not going to have that fully figured out Mm -hmm. and that's a little bit of the problem solving and i think as adults we are very adverse to problem solving we do not like to not know the answer we we do not like to get things wrong children are a lot more flexible that way mm-hmm. now we have a lot of children are we come in with a lot of anxiety when we see them because school doesn't always have that space to allow for that and if this is a child who's continually failed then they're going to be coming in with a lot of anxiety and so i'm not saying that that all children are ready to just jump into it but Children as a whole are far more flexible thinkers than we are. We're a little bit more set in our ways. Yeah, yeah. And, and that anxiety piece is enormous, right? Because our kids get that anxiety from us. And so we as parents have to be careful around how much anxiety we're going through and suffering from and what our kids are seeing in terms of that. And also about how we communicate with our kids, like going back to that language stuff. If we are freaking out about poison ivy walking down the path and we're like, there could be poison ivy, oh my God, our kids are going to be nervous. But if we're like, hey, be mindful, there might be poison ivy. This is what it looks like. Just be careful. It typically grows along the sides of the trails. You probably don't want to get it. That's a different level of of communication and, and anxiety. Like it doesn't have to be as high. Right. We, we model the level of the problem. Right. And so, and, and they'll look to us to see what, what kind of problem this is. And is this, is this something I should be really anxious about? Or is this something I shouldn't be that anxious about? 
And most kids learn pretty early on that school is something to be really anxious about. Mm -hmm. And so that's where a lot of that, I have to get it right, I think comes from. And going back to the language again, that's one of the reasons that we try to stay a little bit away from the good job language because good job is you got it right. Good job is you finished the activity. And yeah, that's fixed mindset stuff. And we want to think we want to open it up a little bit more to what, and even if that's not what you mean by good job, because often that's not what we mean by good job, but that's often the way I think it's heard mm -hmm. for a lot of our kids. Yeah. And we want them to see that the process of getting there is what holds the value and the end result is not, although there's value in it, it's not as important as the process, particularly for kids because they're still learning how to do the process. So exactly. So sometimes even if we get the right answer as the first answer, when we ask a question, the next question we'll say is, Oh, mm -hmm, okay. Uh, can you think of another way to do it? Mm -hmm. And so we're always, we're always trying to open up that idea of just, just because I'm thinking something doesn't mean that that's the right answer. Yeah. This is an area that my, my son, Nate, specifically struggles with, um, especially in and around math, because Nate's really bright. Nate's really good at math. Nate sits down in a worksheet and knows the answers to the problems. He was doing mixed fraction multiplication in his head and getting it right consistently. It wasn't like he guessed and got lucky. He's nailing these questions again and again and again, mm -hmm. but he has to show his work. And this, it's a common ADHD thing, especially for gifted kids. Showing your work can be really hard because it slows them down, which is part of the value of showing your work, but they don't want to slow down. And it means that they're not done as quickly as they'd like to be done. And also there's a little bit of pride for them, at least for Nate and other kids I've worked with too, around, I don't need to show my work. Like I don't- I did it in my head. Yeah, the fact that I could do this in my head means I'm amazing, just let me do it in my head. That process stuff is key. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think um, this brings me to another point that I wanted to make, which is that another thing that we can do when we scaffold is to not celebrate before the individual has recognized what they've done. So when they're working on, a, on some kind of a problem, um, whether it's a, you know, those, um, a game or an activity or homework assignment, um, we have a tendency because we know the, if we know the answer to say, oh, you got it. And what happens is we cut off that moment where they're self-checking their work, mm -hmm. where they're, they may not have realized what they've done yet, and they need to look through it and say, oh, I did get it right. But if we celebrate too soon, sometimes what we do is we cut off that process, and they're like, oh, okay, great, I got it right. And they may not be going back and looking and under, fully understanding how or why they got it right. Yeah. That's a really important skill because that's what we expect them to do for homework, whether it's math or writing essays, whether it's um, a shopping list when you're at the grocery store, that, that going back and checking and seeing, did I get it right? Did I figure that out? It is such an important part that if we don't want to cut that part off, we want that to come from them. And if they're not sure, we can certainly jump in and celebrate and we can say, no, you, you got it if we think they need it, but giving that space 
to let them have the first aha is, is really important. You've got me wondering about how an ADHD parent is going to play with that because the impulsivity that comes with having ADHD may very well mean that I want to jump on their aha moment with my aha moment because I'm so proud of my kid because I'm so excited they got it right, but I'm not giving them the space to figure it out on their own that they nailed it because I want them to feel good. It's hard. It's really hard. And I think it's that, it's that, that's the sort of the relationship piece is, is really watching them. I mean, of course, it's when you're talking about your own children, you have that relationship piece, but when we're working with children that aren't our own and we're building that relationship, Mm -hmm. that's part of it is looking to them to see, because they're going to give that signal. And as soon as you have that signal and it might be, they look up with a big smile, the, the sense of pride. And when you see that moment, that once or twice seeing that moment is enough to be like, okay, I'm going to hold back and wait a little bit just to see that, that moment. And you probably do that a bit on your own naturally anyway. I think that we do sort of have that anticipation where, you know, we've got that excitement and we're waiting for them to see it too. Yeah. So your three pillars one is language. I don't know if we've inadvertently stumbled into the other two or not. So what are, what are the other two, or at least one of them? Language, I think, is the, is the first one and is the most mm-hmm. important one, that we're always using language as a means to, to question, to wonder, and trying not to ask questions that we know the answer to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not going to say, what color is that? But I might say, what color do you want to use? That's a cool distinction. Because children get quizzed so often that if we're just quizzing, if I'm not learning anything from my, from my question, that's not a good question. And also, the, just using your what color is that versus what color do you want to use, what color is that has a right and a wrong answer. And what color do you want to use doesn't have an external right and wrong answer. So if they're going to color in the sun, and you say, what color is that? They're like yellow, but maybe they wanted to color the sun purple. And even something as small as that can affect the kid's anxiety a little bit, right? Like they wanted it to be purple. Now they're feeling anxious because they have to get it right. That kind of circles back to the perfectionism stuff you talked about. Now I'm asking questions that indicates there's a right answer as opposed to questions that indicate that their view of stuff matters. And what color is that is really, I mean, just is not a very interesting question that most of the kids we're asking that to are kids who have already learned their colors and may not be that interested. And if they haven't learned that colors, then as you pointed out, that's a very anxiety provoking question, but I might be interested what color they want to use. And so then that opens up a whole new idea. And so just going back to those pillars, language, scaffolding would be the next one. How do we support? And that would be the supporting enough to, enge- to sustain the thinking, but not necessarily to solve the problem for them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it is helping them to solve the problem, but usually it's how much do I need to give so that they'll stay with this activity. And that's thinking of scaffolding like you would on a house, right? Like you want to help raise them up to where they need to be to do the work that they're trying to do and support them in doing that work. So if a kid... And sometimes scaffolding is something as simple as the kid is still really working out this problem and they're coming up with a a great story, for example, but their hand is tired and they can't write anymore, but they're still flying 
And if you start writing for a little while while the, and you're recording the ideas, that's one way of scaffolding for them in a way that allows the brain to still do the work, even though physically their hand is cramping up or something. That might be a small example. Exactly. Yeah. And you could even take that a step further and say, you know, what, what would be helpful for me to do mm -hmm. right now? And see if they can come up with the idea of, well, can you write for me and I'll talk? One way that I scaffold Nate is I go away when he does homework. Because if I'm there, he gets more anxious and upset about stuff. And if I'm not there, then he feels better about yeah. it. So I try to give him 15 minutes and then I wander back in. Sometimes it's, it's being completely silent and not saying a thing and not pointing out that the edge pieces on a puzzle go around the outside or yeah. any of the above. Right. And sometimes it's pointing out to the kid that you probably want to start with the edge pieces because maybe this kid has never done a puzzle before and needs to know that. <laughs> uh, so we should, we should touch on that. So I would, I would say I would never, ever point out the edge pieces on a puzzle. Really? That's my own strategy. Okay. That's something I've learned to do. But that's because I have a picture of what a puzzle looks like and what the outside of a puzzle looks like. Mm -hmm. For a child who's learning how to puzzle, they may not have a, an understanding of what the outside of the puzzle looks like. And so as adults, we tell them, find the corners, find the edges. But when you're developing puzzling skills, that's not, that's not quite how it works. And, and the end result, eventually they start to notice that, oh, if I find the edges, that's going to help solve my problem. But when we're beginning to develop our understanding of puzzles, there's so much more that goes into it because puzzles are part to whole. This is my visual thinking hat on right now. Yeah, do it. Um, puzzles are part to whole. Puzzles are negative space. It's, it's being able, they're matched from memory. So it's being able to hold part of a picture in my mind while I scan and search for something else. Mm -hmm. And so when we come in as adults with those strategies, we are taking away a little bit from those aha moments that that child might have because how great is it for them to suddenly realize oh, all of these pieces are flat on one side so all of those pieces go on the outside right that's that's an amazing discovery to have yeah and and i think i was envisioning my my visual model was different from yours which was cuz mine was an older kid with a much more challenging puzzle, like, like way more, like 500 pieces. And I'm, I was sort of picturing a kid who doesn't know where to start, is completely stuck and is going to give up before this puzzle even gets begun. And that's, that's the kid I would give the edge pieces to. Yeah. And, but, and then I would argue, and this is where, you know, there's so many different ways that we can go at this, but I would argue that if, a child is starting on a puzzle and there's they don't know where to start because there's so many pieces that I would say that puzzle's too high. Right. Or it could be something we could do together and we could scaffold the puzzle. So we could say, okay, well, what piece what pieces do you want me to have to find? And they might say, okay, can you find all the blue pieces? Mm -hmm. like, all right, great. I'm gonna find all the blue pieces. What color are you gonna find? I'm gonna find the orange ones. Okay. Oh, here's an orange one. I got you an orange, you know, and so I would have it be a project that we work on together, but if, you know, if we're sitting down and just working on a puzzle, we might try to find, you know, that would be my go-to. I would find all the edges. And your approach is also, you can tell you do more puzzles than I do. Your question is amazing because it's not a question I ever think of when I do a puzzle. 
like you said, what puzzles should, what, what pieces should I find? And then the kid might say, find the blue pieces, right? I never think to organize a puzzle by color. I just did sort of like a pile of stuff and I'm finding edge pieces that I'm sort of looking to see what might fit. What, what might fit. I don't ever think to sort of put the blue pieces over here and the red pieces over there and the green pieces to the left of those. That's a cool idea. And I do it with Legos all the time, which are a puzzle. Yeah, that kind of brings us to our to the third point. So the three that I kind of think of is language, scaffolding, and the final one is a little bit more of a mindset. And so what there's two parts of it. And one is presuming competence. So yeah, we always want to presume competence. We always want to say that assume that it that an individual is capable of something even if they're not able to show us in the moment. So there could be challenges with language. They might be overstimulated by language. They might be overwhelmed by language. They might have difficulty processing language or expressing what it is they want to say, or there might be motor planning challenges. So it might be that they really have cognitively at a very high level, but it's hard for them to show us that. And so we always want to assume that this is something that they're capable of. And then we can always scale back if we need to. But this goes back to, I think, your first concern when we started talking today is that concern of when does it seem like we're speaking down to somebody? Because, mm-hmm. And we never want to be in that situation. So we always want to be assuming and then scaling back a little bit, you know, scaffolding as needed. And the second part of that is, and this is something we say a lot is when we have a question is be curious. So while I might have my way of solving a puzzle, the child might have a different way of solving the puzzle. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say that that's not a valid way to solve a puzzle because why, why should I? Why, why should I have the only valid way of solving a puzzle? And when we think this way, when we say, well, what would your approach be? How would you do it? It opens up a whole new world of thinking that it turns out might be much higher than the question I was originally asking. Yeah. And so if we can a little bit let go of our own agenda and let them lead the charge and we just support, we are going to see that the thinking is going to go so much higher because it's coming from them. So it's intrinsically motivated and it's not within our own constraints. I'm not putting my constraints on this individual. Yeah. And that question also reveals potentially if a parent needs to kind of rearrange their thought process a little bit, because if a parent says to their kid, how would you go about solving this problem? Or what do you think we should do to solve this problem? Or however we want to say that. And you kind of get the idea that the kid is like, well, you're going to solve it. Like, I don't need to have a way to do this thing because you'll do it. Then that lets us know as parents that we've been solving too many problems and we need to, we need to adjust. Which, which means that we're good parents. That's, that's my job as parents. But, but it's important to take that step back and say, how am I supporting this, these problem-solving skills? And is my child ready for me to take this step back? And I don't mean that solving problems is bad. I mean solving too many problems. Yes. <laughs> That's where the problem comes in, right? Is it, There's too many now. Like You've been doing it a little too much. They're relying on you to solve the problem. Back off and let them 
solve stuff? This can come into play in, you know, simple ways throughout daily life too. So if we, you know, if we have a child who's complaining about um, eating the same thing for dinner too many nights in a row, mm -hmm. then the question might be, okay, well, what, what do you, uh, what do you want for dinner? Do we have the ingredients for that? How are we going to figure out how to make that? And we can support, depending on their age, we can support each step. So we can help them find a recipe. We can help look for the ingredients. We can help create a list and figure out what we have to go to the store to get. And then when we get to the grocery store, that's a whole new slew of problems that can be really fun to solve. So how finding all of the produce items. Well, are all the produce items in the same area on the list or are they going to find the bananas first and then go all the way over to bread and then come back to get apples because apples was third or look and say, okay, we need bananas and apples. Is there anything else we'd find in this section? So yeah. these are all areas. And of course, this is where we're getting into executive functioning and right. all of those hot words right now. Yeah. And I'm firing straight to your visual thinking stuff because one of the things that we've done in our house is we don't have a grocery list. We do, we've, let me withdraw and rephrase. Depending on our level of organization, when we're organized, we don't have a grocery list. What we have is a map of the grocery store that's blank, but it has sort of like the produce section and different areas lined off. And then we just write down in the map what we need mm -hmm. because my wife would send me to BJ's with a grocery list that was not even close to being in order of where stuff was. And my executive functions were getting tapped and overwhelmed and I couldn't handle it. I was like, I wasn't good at skimming down the list and going like, oh, this thing that started from the bottom is gonna be the first thing that I see. So I'd be kind of jumping as best I can and then invariably there'd be three things left that would be nowhere near each other and I have to walk back all over the store again to get those last three things. So the map saved me a ton of brain ex exercise. Yeah, yeah. And so what, what you're doing is, is I think you're also giving yourself a strategy so that you're not relying as heavily on your visual thinking, which may be a more an area that is, is harder for you to access, especially if you're over, visually overwhelmed. Or I, I mean, I'm, I'm making guesses about you. I don't no, know. No, you're on, you're on point. You're doing it right. <laughs> oh. It's but, like you're a professional. <laughs> <laughs> I get visually overwhelmed when I walk into, you know, so we go to Costco. And when I walk into Costco, uh, you know, I, I have to have my list. If I don't have a list, I will go, I, I will go crazy. Uh, I mean, I'm, and when I say that, I mean, I will bring everything home from Costco. I will bring all of Costco home with me um, because I won't be able to. I'll be worried about missing something and I'll get distracted. But if I have that list, that's what helps. That's my strategy because that helps me stay focused. But what I have to do is I have to use my visual thinking. So I have to picture each section of the store as I walk through it and do a scan of my list and say, okay, do I have anything else in this area? Um, and of course my, my way isn't completely foolproof. So I'll miss something if it's not, you know, I'll have to go back run back to the beginning, which is a hassle, but, uh, but that also depends on whether I've eaten, whether I've had my coffee, whether I slept well the night before. <laughs> and if I did all of those, all of, all of those things, my trip through Costco goes pretty smoothly. 
if I didn't do all of those things, and I'm also thinking about that stressful meeting I had the other day, or the stressful meeting I have coming up, um, then I'm zigzagging all over the store. Yeah, I'm with you. Never go to Wegmans. Wegmans is so visually overwhelming, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I've been there once, and, and uh, that, was, that was a bit, a bit much for me. <laughs> um, so just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? I think we sort of touched on it with the final, the final stage, but I think, uh, which is that take a moment, remember presuming competence and being curious that staying with that is going to taking a moment to just remember that and let go of our own ideas of how we want something to go is going to open up a whole new world of, of thinking of problem solving that's going to be at such a more interesting and higher level than what we would have, what would have been our idea. And so I think that's a really important thing to remember when working with any individuals, children or adults, um, especially when it comes to social problem solving. Um, and one thing I didn't really touch on, and I think this is um, just something important to say, but that when we are talking about problem solving, there's a few things that have to come first. One is we have to all be regulated. Everybody has to be calm and alert and available for learning. And if someone's having a meltdown, then we have to step back and solve that first. Um, the next one is, and this is coming from the DIR floor time model um, that we use in our, in our work. And the next one is we have to be engaged. There has to be communication happening. And when that happens, if there's, a, if there's regulation, engagement, and communication, then we can begin problem solving. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.